You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And uh, it's time for Agent in Charge. And we've got the Agent in Charge online. And um, I know that he's got his script ready and uh, ready to rock and roll with it. But I was going to... um, Ask him uh, because Sandy spent so much time in uh, in Russia during uh, the Cold War, and um, thank goodness we never it never got hot. But uh, anyway, he did spend a lot of time in in Russia uh, while he was in, with the federal government and uh, doing what he did, and uh, he did a marvelous job of it because he came back so. I guess any time you get out of there and you come back, you've done an, you've done a good job by uh, living through it all. But anyway, uh, welcome once again, Sandy, to America's Web Radio. Thank you, Dave. It's always good to be here, and, and uh, thank you for all those uh, that, uh, that that praise there. I'm, I'm blushing on this other end here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, you you are an example of. And and there's so many uh, we as Americans, and I'm I'm painting it with a pretty broad brush, but we as Americans take for granted, and we take for granted a lot, and we don't know who's behind us taking care of us, what they're doing, what they're sacrificing, and um, a lot of times what their families are sacrificing as well. Dad's gone for X number of days or months or years or whatever. The uh, the spouse is by herself or himself for months and months and years or whatever. And, you know, in the same way you throw in the military, you throw in all sorts of uh, responders that and people that are so dedicated taking care of us in one shape, form, or fashion. And, uh, you know, was this, I, I, it'd be interesting, was this a goal of yours when you, when did you realize that that you were ready to, or you, you would be willing to sacrifice, really you're sacrificing your personal life in many ways for <laughs> millions of people you don't know and never will know? Well, you know, that's, that's a hard question to answer because uh, I did. I, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to go. When I grab, when I graduated high school, I wanted to go into the Marine Corps. That was my goal, and uh, I let my parents talk me out of it. And I look back and regret that. You know, I, I wish I would have served uh, at least one uh, one tour in the United States military. But as I got older, I got my college degree and uh, started looking at the different uh, branches of, of federal service, and I you know, realized, you know, that. Law enforcement and uh, especially federal law enforcement was something that you could do for a career and do a lot of good. And but you really need to decide what it is that you want to do. And so I wanted to go with one of the big three, and the, the big three being either DEA, FBI, or, or the Treasury, U.S. Customs, and chose U.S. Customs because they had such a, a broad spectrum of what they worked. And plus, I was just really interested in the old Elliot Ness stories, and movies, <laughs> and stuff. He was a Treasury agent. And, to me, it looked like a lot of fun. G-man, I believe, is the term. Exactly, and uh, but it was uh, paid well. And uh, but in the meantime, you know, I didn't really realize when I went into it what a heavy occupation it is. I mean, as far as what you do, sacrifice and, and what 
you have to do to be successful because it, it's not a it's not a uh, nine to five forty hour a week job. It's, it's definitely a twenty twenty four seven you know life life changing event, and then that you just you don't really have a job. It's a lifestyle you you, uh, you know you not really adapt to what you live. And uh, so, like I say, you know, the the phone when the phone rings, just like we used to call it the bat phone. Whenever I call the agents or I get called in, we say we call that the bat phone. The bat phone rings, it's time to go to work, you know. Mm. And uh, so, uh, you never really knew what it was going to be. I've, I've had everything from from calls to uh, an airport to uh, check a person who uh, may have some type of uh, illegal cigarettes to as much as. You know, we've I've had calls when when people when the, the local police force down Del Rio was needing assistance for guys who'd robbed the bank, tracking them down, shutting down the exits out of the country, and so you know, and then you know, I've had I was called you know in the middle of the night on the weekend on the Boston bombing and on the, the Eric Snowden case and, and just you name it. I mean, it's just it's a wide spectrum. But uh, but the thing I thought about, I've been told a lot of times by people they. Thank you very much for your service. We appreciate it. And I, and I always tell them, I say, you know what? I enjoyed it, and thank you for paying me so well to do it. Because <laughs> we do get paid well. And the, once you get become an officer in the, the United States Army or the military, they get paid well as well, you know. So to answer your question, I really don't know when the, the, the switch flipped over. But, you know, but it was it, it was only just a few weeks into the job that I realized how important it was. So, and I had... Had no intention of ever leaving it and enjoyed it. Stayed with the same agency from start to beginning. We were adapted, we were adopted by Homeland Security in, in 2003 with uh, immigration and Secret Service. And I know I'm leaving someone out, guys. I'm sorry, I'm just drawing a blank. But anyway, but so we were, you know, we were brought into Homeland Security, but the job never really changed. It was still the same job. So. Well, it was, uh, the one that did you leave out ICE? Wasn't that brought in under that? You know, ICE is a, it's, it's an umbrella under the umbrella. And uh, so we were, I worked for Homeland Security Investigations and uh, with the uh, funding agency is ICE, okay? I know there's, there's we, we tried before I retired and then they're still working on possibly moving HSI from out under ICE because so much of uh, the, you know, ICE has a much larger budget than HSI because they, they take care of the detention centers uh, more more guys on the street. They're the they're the street level immigration police you see on TV all the time, arresting all the criminal aliens. And it, even though HSI does get involved in that, they mostly work organized international crime. And so, but as of right now, HSI is still under ICE. Now, when I was in Internal Affairs, or as they call it now, uh, Office of Professional Responsibility, uh, I was under ICE. And even though I was, all of our agents came out of HSI. We were, we were actually, we, we covered the whole spectrum of ICE. And then, uh, my first, my, my first year, we actually covered pretty much all, all of, uh, Homeland Security, which included, uh, uh, the Border Patrol and ICE. And, uh, uh we did some work with, with TSA. We'd get farmed out to them. And so, uh, but it, as time went by, it narrowed down. CBP came up with their own internal investigations unit. And, and my last tour when I was the uh, the ASAC out in El Paso, uh, it was just ICE. We were just we were just working ICE cases, okay. and so. Uh, anyway, yeah. but it's, it's been a fun ride. I can't I can't complain. You also so, worked with uh, CID, didn't you? Uh, several CIDs. I worked with Army CID. I didn't work for them. I just worked with them on a lot right, of cases. Right. Army CID, Air Force CID, uh, NCIS. There were times and. 
There's also a, uh, a a branch under the Department of Defense uh, that, uh, if they haven't changed their name, they are actually part of the Inspector General uh, General's Office for the uh, DOD uh, Department of Defense uh, Inspector General's Office. But they specified they were specifically working with us on uh, looking into defense contractors and people illegally selling military hardware to uh, countries that they weren't supposed to be selling it to. And so I worked a lot with those guys as well. And so, uh, like I say, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a big world out there when you start dealing with that. Exactly. I'm trying to remember who all works for who. But the good thing is when, when I, we were customers, like I said, we had a lot of money. We were, we were self-funded, and I, I said in an earlier program, for every dollar, our last year, our last uh, budget report you know, in 2000, from 2002 or three, I have to go back and look. But anyway, our last year, where we were not under ICE or under DHS, uh, for every dollar that we spent on our on our law enforcement programs and our customs, we made $18. So that made us real popular on the street because we always had lots of money to pay informants and, and bring other people in, and we funded lots of uh, task forces. And so that's kind of how... We became such a large outfit, just that we were really well funded. And as time went by, that that changed because we had to start now sharing all of our funding with with ICE, with the uh, with the uh, immigration officers. And it's you know no fault of their own. It's just it was a you know we had more people trying to get to the pie. And so, uh, but uh, yeah, we I worked with a lot of different people, a lot of, a lot of really good agencies, really good people. Well, I uh, I know I've taken you off script. I want to throw out one one quick thing because we've been very involved with it, and that's the um, vandalism to the uh, healing wall in Johns Creek, Georgia. The the healing wall being the fifty percent size version of the uh, Vietnam Wall in Washington D.C. That uh, the healing wall in Johns Creek is the um, one that toured the United States where people could get an idea of it, look up their relatives, look up their friends or whatever that had died in Vietnam. And uh, it looks like they have um, not found the guilty parties, but they at least know what caused the problem or what <laughs> what inflicted the wounds to the wall, which uh, I find amazing, but... We'll drop it at that. The uh, mayor of Johns Creek asked, asked me to uh, just basically drop the issue, drop the reward that we had posted. And uh, so, I, out of respect for him, I'm doing what he says. So, we'll go from there and hope that uh, other vandals don't get the idea that uh, they should do anything to the wall. Um, but anyway, so... I still, I still like your idea. We talked about it. I guess it was the day before yesterday. And uh, I like your idea on, on putting out a reward because that has worked for centuries, putting a, word, a reward out. And somebody knows something, and uh, eventually they'll come forward and say, hey, that five grand looks pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's the guy you need. And so somebody knows. And of course, they always go to the first thing they say is they'll Hey, I will tell you this as long as I don't get prosecuted or you grant me immunity. That's always the first word out of some out of an informant's mouth. And so you just have to work that bill out up front. So be prepared to do that in case that does happen. So, well, uh, I think at this point we're just dropping the issue and uh, save me a grand, and uh, we'll let it go at that. Anyway, you have a topic that I I found interesting and. Um, I I even came up once you get into it. I came up with a couple of questions for you, so I'll okay, turn it back over to you. 
Well, this is a, a, an interesting topic because uh, it's, it's a very debated topic, and as I started researching the, the latest uh, statistics on it, uh, they, it varies on however you look at it. So this is not a show on, on what's right and what's wrong in this regard. It's just to talk about and put out the facts, what's the, the positive and the negative, and that's about legalizing marijuana in the United States. And so... Uh, I spent a little over two years, uh, almost three years in Grand Junction, Colorado, where I left, uh, when I came back from, my, from the International Affairs, which I was stationed in Moscow. And, uh, and then the meeting, while I was gone, they had legalized marijuana, of course, in Colorado. I believe they were the, probably the first, one of the first states to legalize marijuana. And what that means is just within the, the state of Colorado, Legalize uh, recreational use and sale of marijuana, cannabis, and uh, and in Colorado, uh, where I was stationed in Grand Junction, that was what they called the Western Slope of the Rockies area, but a little more conservative area. Uh, the the uh, Mesa County, where I was uh, stationed, each each county was allowed to vote to decide whether or not they wanted to allow. Uh, marijuana to be legally sold in their county or not. The Mesa County actually voted to not allow marijuana to be legally sold in their in that county. And uh, but it changed it, it really changed uh, the uh, Colorado. And some people say for good, some people say not for so good. And it definitely changed the uh, the, the way Colorado does business and, and the people that stay in Colorado. I was assigned to a uh, or I was we were part of what they called the uh, it was the uh, trying to Trident uh, Drug Task Force, and uh, that was the uh, the Grand Junction area all the way up to Vail, which included Glenwood Springs, uh, several towns along uh, Interstate 70 where a lot of the uh, narcotics were trafficked, and we uh, we would we would work with them on on doing anything that would reach the federal level as far as an investigation went, and uh, and I would meet monthly with all the chiefs, chiefs of police, and the sheriffs, and, and we would discuss money and. You know, funding and, and uh, discuss how things were going, and, and uh, as far as who was seeing what trends, who was uh, who was uh, uh, noticing a change to for whatever reason. Different gangs were you know, we monitored different the different gangs that were working in the area. But one day it was interesting when during our lunch, I uh, asked everybody point blank. I just said, "But already in my truth, I said, well, what are you guys that?" What have you seen here? I mean, how has uh, how has legalizing marijuana changed what you do as police officers here in the state of Colorado? And they all unanimously came out and told me. They said, "Hey, our street level petty crime has you know not only doubled; it, it's almost quadrupled." And uh, because we're drawing in people that used to not live here, that you know, for the most part, they. Uh, they were. They had a lot of. They were uh, drug addicts. Uh, and then, of course, you know, drug addicts go you know, the uh, the black market swallow them around. So, not just did they have the issue with the marijuana, but they now they had a lot more methamphetamine, a lot of heroin in the state of Colorado. And so, but like that said, I mean that's uh, that's talking to one side of the the picture there. Uh, that was the way you know that the chiefs there looked at it, the the, the the sheriffs and all. But then, as you start looking at what it did for Colorado revenue-wise. I mean, it really increased the amount of money, and I can't remember off the top of my head how many millions of dollars they increased their state revenue, but they were able to actually cut back on property taxes and different taxes because 
they were generating so much uh, revenue from from marijuana sales that they didn't have to take from those different those different areas. So it took a lot. It took some of the uh, pressure off your actual taxpayers, except for those who were buying marijuana. Of course, they were paying a tax on that. <laughs> so just wanted to uh, you know just kind of discuss you know where okay where did drug where did drug uh, interdiction and control start. And where is it going? And I say marijuana is kind of the uh, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg. I don't know where this is going to end in, in my lifetime or our our, our lifetime, but uh, definitely the attitude towards what uh, is is uh, considered to be a standard. Okay, what is good for society, not good for, was not good for society. For example, marijuana has really changed in the last fifty years. Let me, so, let me uh, ask, uh, let's take a break right quick, and then we'll get back to this. And uh, I want to ask when we come back, do you and our law enforcement in general feel as uh, like I do that uh, marijuana is a gateway drug? And uh, we'll be back to discuss that right after this. Challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on America's Web Radio with uh, Agent in Charge. And we're talking, um, or he's talking, I'm not talking, but he's talking about the legalization of marijuana. Um, Quite frankly, uh, another show that we do detailing addiction, Dr. Blank, I can assure you, is anti-legalizing the use of marijuana, even the use of uh, the oil, the CBD or whatever it's called, uh, that, you know, she's seen so many cases, and you and I, Sandy and I were just talking about this, which he was saying the other side of the coin, but yet uh, Dr. Blank and and her folks... uh, See another side of the. I guess it's a four-sided coin. I don't know, but uh, 
the fact that marijuana does lead to harder stuff, and you you were just saying that it didn't. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to find out, and uh, I'm not any kind of – I, have I like many other people that are my age, have tried it. or And I, I quite frankly, when I tried it, I must throw this out too, is that I was smoking uh, – Probably two packs a day of uh, Benson and Hedges or different uh, cigarettes. And when I tried marijuana, I made the mistake of that I would inhale it down to my toes. And uh, I always found that uh, marijuana was very rough on my lungs. And I don't know if it was from the open type flame almost to, uh, I don't know what it was, but I, I was never, I never enjoyed it i'd rather go have a good gin and tonic but that's my preference anyway <laughs> bye, well, back uh, to you yeah, sandy but, yeah well the question you asked before we went to the break is that is, that, is, is it a what you call it a uh, gateway drug a, uh, gateway drug yes and so for a lot of years i thought that you know and uh working at you know, about half my career was spent working our uh, counter uh, narcotics interdiction or in narcotics interdiction and uh, in the other half, I was, it was mostly national security type of work. But uh, early on in my my time on it's a, especially on the southwest border, uh, I uh, dealt with a lot of mostly. I didn't deal with a lot of drug addicts, but I dealt with with smugglers. I mean, they were they were they were fueling the fire, so to say. They were they were providing as they call them, you know, uh, party gifts. And uh, but uh, anyway. I had an interesting conversation with a guy that uh, recently passed away, and, and uh, we had caught him in a, uh, a case. Uh, it was a cocaine smuggling case, and it was a gal by the name of Jennifer Joe Barnes, and she was a, she was hooked up with there were a bunch of a ranching kids that came from ranching families that uh, had uh, gotten involved in the drug trade down in Del Rio, and, and uh, this was one of the uh, uh, Guys who was involved. In, I'm trying to remember his last name. I this, his, we called him his first name was Stormy. I'm just trying to remember his last name now. He'll come to me in a moment. But anyway, so he, after he had been uh, had made a deal and uh, he'd been he'd been indicted, arrested, and, and he made a deal to provide information to us on other people that were uh, that were dealing in uh, cocaine smuggling. Uh, I was at his attorney's office with him with another agent, and I asked him. I said, uh, I said. So what do you? I said, how'd you get started with? Uh, he was also an addict. He was one of the few guys I worked with that was an addict. And I asked him, uh, a recovering addict. He had a part of his. He was on supervised release, and part of the the uh, the conditions of his release was that he would not, of course, use cocaine or other illegal drugs. So I asked him how that was going, and, and he said, well, he said, you know, it's not that good. He said, he said, I really uh, miss cocaine. I get up and think about it every day. He said, I don't take it, but he said, I definitely think about it. And I said, well, I said. How'd you get into it? Did you start out like smoking marijuana in high school or something like that? And he goes, "No." He said, uh, "That's a misconception. That's a misconception that people have who don't live in the, the drug world." He said, "He said uh, a cokehead is a cokehead and a pothead is a pothead." He said, uh, "He said, you know, cokeheads, uh, cocaine addicts." Uh, he said, "You know, that's our that's our drug of choice." He said, "He said, now I have smoked marijuana, but it didn't lead me into cocaine." He said, "He said, I he said I, I tried a couple of uh, he said I actually did cocaine first when he was younger." He didn't tell me exactly what age. He said, I tried cocaine first, and then I tried some marijuana after that. And I, said, I went back to the cocaine. He said, that's what I really like. But he said, you talk to a person that's a uh, that's, that's uh, a marijuana user, 
they're going to tell you the same thing. I mean, because they, they don't, they really get to know their drug. They know what it'll do, and they like the fact that they not, not to say that they don't shop around. I mean, I'm sure a bunch of them shop <laughs> around and try to find what it is they like the best. But, uh, but, you know, for the most part, he said, he said there's exceptions to every rule, but he said, he said the vast majority of people who, who are, are, are illegal drug abusers specify one type of, uh, specifically go after one type of drug. And so, and I saw that as time went by, I started, I started to notice that. And that is true. I mean, and it was, you know, a lot of times I, I'd, I'd catch these guys that were, that were smuggling cocaine and, 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 uh, and they would be, they would, they would have marijuana in the car, and I'd ask them. I said, "Hey, is, is that what you're? Uh, you gonna sell that too? It'd be a small amount." No, no. I said, "I just smoke pot just to relax me, so I don't get nervous when I'm when I'm when I'm hauling cocaine." <laughs> so, you know. So, but answer your question, and I'm not sure that there are people who will come back and contradict what I just said. And there are exceptions to every rule, but but when you talk to these guys who are, who are really living the life, I mean, that they'll all pretty much tell you the same thing. Either they're I'm a uh, a meth head or uh, a, a, you know, a coke head or a pot head. And, mm. uh, that, that's what's just a slang term for, for a, an addict, you know. So, uh, but, but it seems like but, uh, what I saw through the years was that in, in dealing with, uh, with, with, with drug addicts, and I, said, I didn't really deal with a whole lot of, of really serious street level uh, drug addicts because I was dealing with, I was more or less after the business end. I was after the guys who, who ran the cartels and ran the, uh, the, the supply routes into the United States. And so, and, and they could not afford to be stoned all the time because, you know, it's a, it's a business like any business, and you can't you can't success, you can't successfully run most businesses if you're if you're stoned all the time. But the ones I found that that were more functional than anybody else, as far as that goes, is in that same regard as the, the the people who use marijuana. They seem to have a better have a better capability of controlling it and, and being able to say, okay, I'm not going to be stoned for these. You know, for eight hours a day, but I'll smoke some tonight. You know, to that event. So, whereas a lot of times with a with a meth head or a, a coke head, I mean, they want to be high all the time, especially a heroin addict as well. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, so. let me has uh, has it. I don't know if you were still uh, before you retired, but uh, with the you know, I grew up, or I say I grew up, but the big thing was uh, you know, roll your own and all this kind of stuff. But now they have. And occasionally you'd have, you'd have the brownie parties or whatever and so forth. But now they have the, it's sort of like a gummy bear, I think. Um, that you know, the, I, uh, that's the one thing that I was going to bring up, you know, because, uh, yeah, they, uh, now I don't know about as far as actual, the, uh, yes, I mean, there, there's all types of ways in just uh, THC, the cannabis. And, and I've gone into the stores there in in, uh, in Colorado and, and to see what they had in there, what they were selling, and and uh, and then also to talk to donors. I just want to make it, you know everybody understand. Okay, federally, okay, marijuana is still illegal. It's still illegal to possess. That has not changed. And you know, state by state, I've got a list of the states here, and I can read them off here in a little bit as to who has uh, has legalized marijuana at the state level there. And uh, but I was still working as a federal agent, and I wasn't even though I could have gone in there and arrested them and caused you know problems with folks. I didn't do it because I knew that in Colorado there's no way even if I arrested these folks for under federal law under twenty one USC eighteen forty one, I mean eight forty one. I would uh, there was no way I get a I could ever get a jury to support a, a a guilty verdict even though they were guilty. I mean they were they were selling marijuana. 
the juries up there, if it's, if it's legal by the state, it would be really, really difficult to ever get a jury to uh, come to the conclusion that what this person was doing was against the law or was was the danger to the society. So we didn't pursue marijuana cases up there. It was, it was There was no reason to do that because there's no way you could win. You're wasting your time. Now, we didn't go after the uh, the meth cases and the, the cocaine cases and stuff like that. We worked with DEA, and uh, we worked those. And they're, they're still not legal in, in specifically Colorado. But I would go into the marijuana shops and, and, uh, and just to talk to the owners and stuff and just say, hey, you know, we're not here to cause you to use problems, but we do want to know if you'll let us know if the cartels from Mexico moving here and start trying to extort you guys and muscle in. We want to keep the violence level down as much as possible because that was something that we were really concerned about because when Colorado was the only country, uh, only only uh, state in the United States that was legally selling marijuana, well, now all of a sudden, you know, you don't have to go to Mexico to get your marijuana. You don't have to cross the United States border. It's much easier to come in from California or from Montana or some other state and just drive across the state line and go to one of those, they call them apothecaries, and uh, go in there and get all you need. And uh, now once you cross the straight line into their states, I mean, you're, you're on your own. I mean, once you went over to Utah, you would get prosecuted there in Wyoming as well. And so, but for for lack, for all practical purposes, Colorado became a, what we call a source country, you know. They were manufacturing, they were growing it there and selling it, and, uh, and, and, pro- and providing it all throughout the country, whether they meant to or not. And uh, so, what? But to answer your question on the gummy bears, oh yeah, they, they you can buy gummy bears, you know, jelly beans, brownies. Uh, my understanding is that if you eat or ingest marijuana, the the uh, the, the high lasts anywhere between six to eight hours, as opposed to smoking, it's maybe a two or three hour high. And so, uh, there's all types of ways to uh, to ingest marijuana. And uh, but like I say, that's but the uh, that was the you know the what you know, we talked in the earlier show about the Volstead Act. It was actually signed into law, I think, in 1919, and didn't really get rolled until the 1920s. But when they shut down, uh, when the United States shut down uh, uh, alcohol, you know, alcohol uh, production and sales in the United States, and of course that that created what was really probably the biggest black market, smuggling market that we had really seen of that size in this country. Other than I guess the Boston Tea and you know the that was going on back during the Revolution, prior to the Revolutionary War, and uh, but so you know there's two sizes. I mean, if you I, I tried to find some information, and I say the thing about when you try to when you research legalization of marijuana, okay, it all it's just like any poll you take, any person, everybody has their own idea, and everybody is skewed to, to what they want to see. If a person believes that marijuana is a good thing. And it's uh, a way to save, you know, cut down on crime and, and raise revenue. Of course, their polls are going to indicate that. I, when I was looking up, trying to find uh, a good estimate on how many uh, marijuana users there are in the United States, I found I got everything from 5 million to 158 million. <laughs> <laughs> it just all depends on who's, who's doing the research, you know. Well, somebody and, uh, somebody but, must have been a little high when they were the, that much difference. <laughs> But I can't tell you. I mean, it does solve some issues, but it does create some issues too. And that's why we—that's why I'm saying it's one of those bills. I mean, and, and alcohol is the same way. And uh, people argue this all the time. They say, uh, you know, I can I can smoke you know a couple of joints on on a uh, Sunday night watching a football game, and I won't be hungover. I can get, go to work and do just fine. And I'm sure that's true. 
and uh, and alcohol physically is probably worse for you than marijuana. I mean, I know that there are some studies right now that that show that uh, in uh, you know, long-term use of marijuana, uh, according to the CDC, they say that it, it impairs short-term memory. Uh, is now they're saying it, it causes lung problems similar to cigarettes, you know, and which was, which is only stands a reason. And uh, but you know now, but but at the same time, now that you're controlling the uh, the uh, the quality of the product. I mean, when you're when we, when we, I used to catch, you know, not only hundreds of pounds but thousands of pounds of marijuana. My myself and my agents, we go through the years. We just, I don't have any thousands of pounds we caught. I'd like to sit down someday and figure it out. <laughs> One time, my wife and I were in, in South Austin on Lamar Street, and I used to I used to always make the comment because you know you, when you look at a bale of marijuana that weighs fifty to sixty pounds, you think. Who smokes all this? I mean, that's a lot of stuff to smoke, <laughs> and uh, and so it's basically when you catch a load of like two thousand pounds. And I was walking down the street there where we we're. I can't even remember why we were in South Austin, but I looked at the crowd there and I thought, now I know where all that marijuana goes. <laughs> I don't think there's enough to supply these guys here, but uh, but anyway, but uh, but you know, but here's the thing that's uh, the kicker behind this is it's one of the it's one it's something Americans are going to have to. And uh, whether you know, it, it really needs to be decided at the federal level because if even though you uh, say I know Oklahoma has recently uh, uh, voted to allow recreational marijuana use, and, and so they're behind the curve on Colorado and the different states that are doing it and allowing the uh, marijuana sales, but it is still, like I say, it's still a federal offense, and according to the uh, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, it's still a Schedule One. Uh, drug. It's not a narcotic. It's a it's a psychoactive, what they call a psychoactive drug, and uh, which is similar to a psychotropic. It's, it's not it's not an opioid. It's not, even though it, people do claim it does relieve pain, it's not considered an opioid like the uh, the products that come from the opium derivatives that, that are commonly used in, in medicine today. And so, even though people argue that marijuana does have medicinal effects and it's used in cancer patients when they can't. When they have problems with eating and, and keeping food down, and, and, uh, and I know for sure it works in that case, you know, uh, there's still it's at the federal level. It's still considered to be illegal to possess it. It's still a Schedule One, and it's in a Schedule One, it says that there's no known or no practical medical use for for that particular drug. Cocaine, on the other side, everybody thinks you know. I remember I had to. Uh, there was a sergeant of. Uh, of narcotics with DPS, and he called me one day because he had not ever, he just was new to the uh, to the actual prosecuting these cases. He'd been a state trooper, and he called me to help him with an affidavit. He was on our task force in Dorio, and he asked me, he goes, he goes, uh, okay, let me read this to you over the phone, and he told me, the first thing he said, you know, he, he reads, the person was called this day in possession of of, uh, of cocaine, alleged cocaine, uh, a Schedule one uh, uh, narcotic. I said, well, that's all. I said, everything on your on your affidavit is fine. I said, except for that, I said, cocaine's a Schedule Two. He goes, no way. I said, no, it is. I said, I think cocaine is a Schedule Two. I said, it's, it's actually a uh, it's a numbing agent, and it is used in, in quite a few of the different drugs at the time that they were using for they made so many different new synthetic uh, uh, opioids, you know. And so, but like I say it's still considered that. And so, what that also means when it's still illegal federally, say you're in the marijuana business. Uh, you open up your shop in Oklahoma, and you know your first week, everybody stacked up up door, and you make hundred thousand dollars. What are you going to do with that hundred thousand dollars now? Because the banks 
all the FDIC banks are, are they, they operate under federal law. And so by federal law, they cannot receive illegal drug money. The American state says it is or it isn't. The federal law says it, 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 it is illegal, and therefore you can't put your money in those banks. If you do, it can be it can be contrived, and you can be prosecuted for drug, uh, I mean, for money laundering, and yeah. trying to uh, to uh, legitimize the sales of, of illegal narcotics. So that's what I'm saying. But you know, there's a contradiction in every state because and people don't know what to do because what do you do if, if your state says it's illegal and the federal government says it's not? And so uh, that's kind of what I want to you know just kind of bring out is that we all kind of need to get on the same same page on this as far as what we're going to do now the reality is just like when uh when uh back in was it 1940s that they built the sunset strip in vegas <laughs> when it was just a little uh one horse town up in the nevada desert who was it uh mr hughes uh, no no it was uh oh, I, i'm sorry i'm just it's uh bugsy seagull oh okay uh, yeah yeah, he, he, he hated to be called Bucky. They said he didn't like that name. He, he built the first Flamingo, the first casino in, in Las Vegas. I think it was in the 1940s, I believe. And he's the one who got the ball rolling there. And, and the, uh, the way it passed through the state legislature, the way it was approved, is that they said, you know, this will, uh, uh, this will end all the, uh, the black market stuff, all the black market gambling. And it'll give people a, play, a legal place to go to go gamble and to have a good time and, and not have to worry about being arrested and then they can go home and then it's all over with. But as you know, I mean, when the casinos came in and everything else followed, you know, here came the uh, legal booze peddlers and, and the drugs, the drug sales guys and the, uh, the prostitution followed. And so, you know, it's the same thing. That's the issue that they're having in Colorado today is that uh, they've drawn a lot of really undesirable people into their state by allowing uh, marijuana to be sold there. And these, you know, this, all these folks want to do, I mean, they're just, they're, uh, they're, either they're addicts and, and they're not really contributors to society. And, and of course, that is why their, their street crime got so high when I was there. And now I haven't, I left in uh, 2016. And so I haven't really talked to anybody out there since then if things have gotten better or worse. And, and uh, at a future show, we're going to have Jamie Fitzsimons on. He's the uh, sheriff of Breckenridge, Colorado. And we'll ask him that. We'll ask him this point Blank. You know, and he was a sheriff. He was a, uh, a a chief deputy in Breckenridge prior to uh, the legalization of marijuana. And so it'll be interesting to get his perspective on now on, on where where they're going and and how it's affecting you know uh, the state of Colorado now. You know, yeah, you know, like I say, well, I'm sorry. There's always been the uh, you know tr- people will try to compare it to alcohol or well alcohol is legal and it's a drug and yada da 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 and uh, you know I can remember back many many years ago that uh, you know even the thought or talk of uh, legalizing marijuana was was taboo of sorts and yet you know there was always the argument well you know and I guess I sort of go of the philosophy that and it's like uh, well they they certainly proved it during the during prohibition that if somebody wanted to drink bad enough they were going to have a drink and right right I think this is probably very close to uh, the same issue with marijuana and the only other thing I would say is is marijuana well we legalize marijuana so let's legalize coke and heroin 
And, uh, you know, I, I just, that just really drives me nuts, even the thought of it. But, again, if somebody's going to, you know, it's, we haven't killed marijuana or we haven't killed heroin or coke or any of the other stuff. And, uh, you know, for one, for one good agent like yourself, there's probably 200 or 300 bad guys that are selling it and getting rich off it one way or the other or doing something with it. And uh, you just can't, <laughs> you can't have enough agents to follow everyone around that's in the drug business and wait for them to make a deal, in my opinion. Right. And it's, right. whether you like it or not, it's going to be there, and uh, uh, I don't know. Is there an answer? Well, you know, like I say, that, and that's, well, I kind of alluded to this in the beginning. I mean, we, we know what the results in Colorado were as far as the, uh, the increase in crime. In regards to, uh, you know, legalization of, of heroin and, and, uh, and uh, methamphetamine and cocaine and, and several of the, as they call hard drugs, the, uh, the, the truly physically addictive drugs, and they know, and just, just a side note, I mean, what they were teaching, they may have changed this now, but when I went through, uh, my training, back then, they were considering cocaine to be, uh, not to be physically addicting, but psychologically addicting. So I guess it doesn't really matter, but, you know, but the others, I mean, you still want to have it and you'll still do whatever you have to do to get it. And, uh, but the other you know, ones that are physically addicting, like methamphetamine and, and, and heroin, where you go through physical withdrawal and alcohol is the same way. I mean, if you're, if you're a bad enough alcoholic, you'll go through uh, physical withdrawal as well. Uh, in the words of a guy, the late great Ken Curry, who was a good friend of mine and a, a retired DEA agent as well. It's been a, his career, his entire career at the DEA, uh, former army ranger. And, and, uh, he said, you know, the last thing America needs is another intoxicant. He said, uh, he said, if, if we keep allowing people to stay intoxicated and uh, stoned, really, then he said our work productivity in this country is going to drop off. And so, and, uh, of course, that's something that you, you know everybody has a different response to, you know. But that was the way he looked at it, and uh, and and I can see his point of view on that as well. Interesting thing when I was working in internal affairs is that you know you learn. Uh, you when you're really when you when you're not really pursuing someone who's uh, an alleged drug smuggler or, a, or an enemy of the United States, and you're trying to get to the I mean I mean every investigation should you should be trying to get to the truth on on really what's going on and what happened. That's really the job of the special agent. But it was really came out it became uh, paramount and, and clear when I was in internal affairs, both as an investigator and as a supervisor that there's always two sides to every story, every allegation. And so, you know, we have to really look at this whole marijuana issue like that. Do we want to keep spending not millions, but billions of dollars every year interdicting something that's just like prohibition? I mean, I could almost bet you in 10 years from now it's, it's going to be legal. When, this, when the new generation, the millennial generation, takes over the Congress and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, and the Senate, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna legalize it, and it's one of those things. How much more effort do we want to put into this if, if, if we know this is gonna happen anyway? Now, what I did have a hard time finding any conclusive data on is how it really affected, you know, Holland, uh, the Netherlands. They legalized uh, all drugs. You know, prostitution is, is legal there. Uh, I'm trying to think how long ago that was. Was it like 25, 30 years ago? 20 years at least, and. Uh, 
but I know that there, there's been a lot of time to study it, and, uh, you know, a lot of the different uh, studies I've read, they say that actual crime there has increased. Well, just like Colorado, the street crime has increased, but they claim that the addiction level has dropped in their country. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I, you know, that's one thing that I've always told everybody that one of the best courses I ever took in college was statistics and probabilities, and, and, and in that format in that class, they also talked about polls and how there's really no such thing as a, as a poll that does not, as a, as a unbiased poll, because polls have to be financed, and, and whoever is paying for that poll is, you know, wants that thing, to, that poll to, to, to give their point of view. And so I've, I found that, once again, it's just like trying to figure out how many people in the United States actually use marijuana. The, the number ranges somewhere between 5 million to 150 million. And uh, the same the same results I have found so far on the Netherlands as far as their results. But you know that said, when you look at the history of this country, I mean I just look at I find this pretty fascinating. You know we actually started trying to uh, get a handle on pharmaceuticals back around 1860, and especially after the Civil War because there was a lot of uh, uh, the soldiers that were wounded that came out of the. Uh, Civil War as uh, drug addicts because mm-hmm. you know they were in immense pain and and uh, and uh, heroin was uh, being experimented with back then. It, it is a uh, a very heavy uh, narcotic drug that relieves pain, and so you had a lot of guys coming out of uh, out of the uh, the war that were drug addicts and trying to uh, you know to maintain their uh, their their habits. And uh, so by 1860, they they came up with the first law, but they were really just trying. It was really more a uh, more of an effort to label uh, uh, products, uh, drugs that you buy, you know, with what was actually in there and the dangers in them. And so, but, you know, but before, prior to 1900, I mean, pretty much everything was legal. At least there was no enforcement. Every state had a different set of rules, but, you know, all the drugs, all the alcohol, uh, prostitution, gambling, in one way or another, in every state was legal. Now, it wasn't legal in every single town. But, you know, it wasn't far, you didn't have to go very far to find what you were looking for. And so, you know, if you look back uh, then, I mean, I, there, the, uh, the the level of violent crime, okay, even though it was higher in some of the different areas of the country, yes, the country as a whole, was they, the, the, the rate of violence, the rate of homicide was a lot lower than it is now. And so... I guess, I and, guess the one thing that bothers me about this is... We know the situation with drunk drivers, alcohol and drunk drivers. And I hate to see or would hate to see that uh, we legalize or marijuana becomes legal and you've got housewives smoking two or three joints in the afternoon waiting to go pick up their kids or whatever and this and that and we put more under the influence uh, people on the road and you know I don't quite frankly Sandy and I don't mean to be rude but I don't give a damn what you do you know as long right. as it doesn't affect me right. and, and, uh, that's, I, and, that, and that, that's a, that's definitely a common sense approach to it that, that's what I favor as well I really do and, and for all of this and uh, because you know we how many times have we learned in, in the history of not just our country but the world that that you can't regulate morality no i mean you just i mean that that that's a personal choice you know and so and, and that really comes up as to how you were 
who you were raised by, the conditions you lived in your life, the, the, the things that you learned growing up that were, uh, were, you know, what was permissible, not permissible. You know, a lot of interesting thing about, you know, Richard Pryor, the, uh, the way comedian, a lot of people don't realize that he actually grew up in a better word, lack of a better word, a brothel. His mother was the madam that ran the, uh, a brothel, and I can't remember, I think it was in Los Angeles, if I remember right, I have to go back and, but, but, he, he, I've seen him on the old Johnny Carson uh, uh, episodes when uh, he would be asked about that. It, it was exactly what he said. He said, you know, he said, here's the thing. He said, what I grew up, he said, I, I said, I didn't grow up in a in an environment, I don't think, that, that really uh, made me a criminal by any means. He said, but my view on what's permissible in life and what's not is a lot different than someone who grew up in the house of, say, a Baptist preacher, you know. And so, so which one is right? And, uh, but, uh, so it all, that's really, I mean, that's, that's your personal choice. And like I say, you have the, you have the, uh, the, the great thing about this country, you have the, uh, the, the civil liberty of being able to believe in any religion you want to, as long as you're not harming someone else, uh, any, uh, type of living that you, that you can be, that can be done as long as you're not harming someone else. And so, uh, you know, so, yeah, so, but, and, and therefore we have the issue with how do you regulate morality, you know? What is what's really right and wrong? Now the basics we know you can't, you shouldn't be able to rob someone, take what they have. But even under, you know, there's circumstances there where you can uh, different uh, societies throughout the world. If you're about to starve to death and the guy who lives next door to you, he's, you know, you don't have any chickens and he's got 150 chickens, it probably wouldn't hurt for you to take one of his chickens if you're about to die. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so you know, I mean, so morality has is, is, is changed a lot. But, you know, but what really changed, you know, and, and the interesting thing, I say, I always go back to the Volstead Act because it changed this country so much. And the way that we look at, at, at law and the courts and, and, uh, and the way things are today. And because it was such a change to our society, if you think about it, when they just removed all legal alcohol from, uh, from, the, uh, from the United States, or they tried to, they, the legal alcohol, and they created, of course, we talked about the, the huge black market. That can that put Al, Al uh, uh, Capone and all his guys, you know, made them famous and rich and and uh, but uh, and even though uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 when he ran for president, he he promised. He said he said I want to repeal the federal laws of prohibition on alcohol <laughs> because yeah. it was such a it was such a uh, a conflict of way people felt about things. I mean, you had people on the far right who. They didn't want alcohol because, like we said, they didn't want people driving or you know coming home beating wives and stuff like that. And, and on the other side, you had the guys who said, you know, hey, this is America. I should have the choice. If I want to have a couple of beers, that that should be up to me. It's not the government. It's not their business, you know. And so, uh, but as far as marijuana, I mean, you know, all these things, you know, prior to the turn of the century were pretty much permissible, and uh, it, it broke down, you know, from from one jurisdiction to the other. And, uh, and it seems like the further west you got, the less control they had because there was just there's less money, and it was a frontier, you know. And everybody's heard, you know, seen the old westerns and read the stories about you know uh, Wild Bill Hickok and and White Earp, and you know the way they, you know, a lot of people don't realize that White Earp, you know, he not only was he a great marshal, he also he also was a pimp and and uh, and, and uh, did a lot of things that were not back then that were considered they weren't considered to be a vice. But by today's standards, you know, we would say there's no way you could be a, a marshal or a sheriff and still, you know, run a, a, a prostitution ring. And <laughs> so, uh, but like I say, you know, as, as time goes by, things uh, things change. But 
You know, what really changed it all was in 1970 when they came up with the Controlled Substances Act. And that's when the, uh, which was later became called the, the War on Drugs, you know, that's when it, it started. The, Ronald Reagan, I believe, was one who actually called it the War on Drugs. And, uh, but, you know, that's when the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs was first one, which later became the DEA. And, uh, and also that was when the newly, the, the 1970s, they formed the, uh, the, the, the DEA, yeah, I'm sorry. And which actually came out of U.S. Customs. They, when they formed DEA, they, they took agents, uh, customs agents who were working mostly, uh, narcotics cases, and they just said, hey, one day they were a U.S. Customs Treasury agent, and they said, congratulations, you're now, you, you now belong to the DEA. And, uh, so, uh, but, but back to the, uh, you know, what's good for, for the people of the United States, that really is, I think, that's going to come down to a, uh, and it is, it's a state's rights issue. But at the same time, it, it causes a lot of problems in the court system, like I said, because even though it was still illegal to uh, sell, possess, and distribute marijuana in Colorado by federal law, you know, there were no juries that were that we could ever you know, come up with that, that would ever uh, uphold a uh, uh, indictment on a, on a person for doing it when the, when the state has said there's no problem with this, you know, and so... Uh, so, you know, there, there is speculation, and, and uh, I've heard this from a lot of the uh, different people, especially Trump supporters. You know, they they think that, that Trump is holding this uh, as, as ace up his sleeve before this next election is to the promise to try to go ahead and, and change it at the federal level and to, to go ahead and, and make it, you know, permissible, you know, to legalize marijuana. And so now I don't know if that's actually going to happen. That's just, I haven't read anything of that, but I've just, you know, that's, I've heard that discussed in, in several circles. That, that he's just kind of holding that as his, uh, his, his ace up his sleeve, <laughs> which, will, which will bring the millennials, you know, around and say, hey, he's cool. And, you know, but, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that? Or, or his, the join up his sleeve. Um, there you go. Well, I, you know, quite frankly, as you were talking, I, I was thinking about something else that we certainly have no answer to. We certainly have... Uh, not even a idea of what we're going, what effect is uh, the pandemic going to have on drugs or anything else. I heard today somebody had asked, some some astute, brilliant person had asked, okay, well, you know, you're, if your lungs are hurt by smoking uh, regular cigarettes, are you more likely to get or have a problem with uh, with uh, COVID nineteen, and uh, if that be the case, well, what if what if I smoke marijuana? Is that going to be? And the doctor answered that uh, you know marijuana, or at least I haven't ever seen a joint that was filtered. But because marijuana is uh, stronger and that it does mess your lungs up or can, depending on how much you're smoking, obviously. Um, can affect your immunity or your non-resistance to uh, COVID-19. And we don't know whether COVID-19 is going to be over with in two weeks or ten years or what. And, uh, you know, and I, I now, guess, I, again, it comes to choice. I, I Along that same line, I was, I was reading a couple of days ago some studies on it, and uh, there's some pretty conclusive evidence that prolonged, you know, heavy use of marijuana will, uh, can, not in everybody, but in a lot of people, it, it does uh, 
uh, what's the word, not so much damage, but it reduces your immune system, your ability to, uh, to fight off infectious diseases. Now, I say that's, that's still arguable because there hasn't been enough data to really look at it. That would be a, you know, a good question. If I get my buddy, Dr. Ken Curry on here to ask him, he definitely would, he's, he really keeps up with everything and he could answer those questions and from a, a definitely a medical perspective. And uh, I'm sorry, Ken, uh, Ken DeClava. I said Ken Curry, Ken, Ken DeClava. And, uh, but, uh, anyway, but, you know, but, so, but here's the thing now, and, and we saw this, uh, you know, throughout, you know, the last 10 years of, of my, of my career is that, you know, the, when I was start, when I first started as a, as a, an agent back in the, the, uh, 1990s, the majority of the, uh, uh, marijuana that came into the United States came from Mexico, it was it was grown in Mexico and uh, produced in huge fields over there and sold in the United States. And like I said, we would we would we would catch. I'm sure we only caught just a a, a very minute portion of what actually came across the board because there was only like so there's only seven of us and who knows how many thousands of the uh, the mules and the smugglers that we were working over in Mexico, but. Uh, but the, uh, the the level of THC is so much higher now than it was back then. The quality, I mean, you got one thing about Americans. I mean, you give them an opportunity to make some money, they're going to make a better product, better, better, better every year. And so, at one point, I know that uh, when uh, there's the uh, drug traffickers up in Canada, okay, they were they were trading, you know, almost kilo for kilo uh, with uh, with the. Uh, I'm to make sure I got this right. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, they were they were in Canada. They were they were raising what they called a uh, species of, of uh, a variety of marijuana called they called BC bud, British Columbia bud, <laughs> and they were trading those with the uh, cartels when they were needing marijuana in uh, kilo for kilo. They were they were just doing an even swap. And in the past, I mean, when I first started working narcotics, I know that. Uh, you know, probably a, a kilo of, of marijuana was worth, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks. And then, uh, and then, you know, a kilo across the border of cocaine was worth between seventeen and twenty thousand dollars, you know, per kilo. And so, but now when they started swapping that, you know, product for product, just when they, just to meet the demand, you know, to, in order to even up their, their inventory for what the people were buying, it says a lot about, you know, how well, you know, how far marijuana has come in the last 30 years and the potency of it. And so, uh, you know, so that's, you know, definitely something we can definitely, you know, look into as far as it needs to be understood before marijuana is, uh, is legalized in the country is that, okay, you know, we people say that that it's that the uh, physical effects on the on the human body are not near as severe as as alcohol, but with this new level of THC, I mean, I think the jury's still out on that. I don't I don't know uh, you know long term how this is. We have it hasn't really been around long enough. This these really high level THC levels in marijuana to see how it's going to affect someone over a 30, 40, 30 to forty year span. You know, this and, is. Uh, this is one thing that uh, Dr. Blank says is today's marijuana ain't grandpa and grandma's marijuana. <laughs> from, from Woodstock? Yeah. <laughs> Original Woodstock? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so, uh, but yeah, so it's, uh, but at the same time, it's such a politically hot issue. 
And uh, you know, uh, gotta give old Barack Obama credit. There's two things he didn't he didn't try to tackle in his presidency was was uh, marijuana legalization and uh, and uh, gun rights. Sandy, I I hate to do this to you, but you've talked yourself right out of time. We're gone. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Well, we'll we'll take this up. Uh, we'll take this up again real soon. Sandy, thank you. I'm sorry I had to run, but I'm out of time. So. We will talk to you. Enjoy it as always. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.